such a good time to gather together on the Lord's Day and to worship through song and now the Word of God as we look at it together. So take your Bibles and open with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're working our way through this wonderful gospel. Kind of took a break here in chapter 17, verse 5, to address the topic of Jesus as God. Uh, a necessary doctrine to reiterate, even though as we've been going through John now for the last few years, we've heard that a number of times because that is actually one of the reasons why John wrote this gospel, so that we would know that he is indeed the Son of God, deity himself. I want to read verses 1 through 5. John 17, verse 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was." As we began last Lord's Day, I said we would emphasize verse 5, which reads again, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That introduces us to a major theme in the Gospel of John, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he is not less than God, not created by God, but is God. He is Yahweh. He's the same God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the same God that will return on the clouds in heaven when he comes back. I don't know if you realize this, but over 1,700 years ago, there was a great battle that ensued over the very doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. There was a church father by the name of Athanasius, and he has been dubbed Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. The title comes from a lifelong battle that he had to defend and proclaim and teach the deity of Christ. When the whole world at that time had turned away and was abandoning the orthodox teaching of this, Athanasius stood steadfast against the overwhelming defection of the churches of those days and the bishops. He didn't see much success, though, in his his attempt to turn the church back to the latter part of his life. That war ensued in 319. A deacon in Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, who was born in Libya in 256, presented a letter to the bishop of Alexandria. And there he said that Jesus Christ had to be created if he was a son. If he was the son of God, that meant he had to have a beginning. That was the beginning of what we know as the Arian heresies. And it spread like wildfire in those days. Athanasius was born in 298 in Egypt. He was 20 years old when this war began. He was 40 years younger than Arius. It's a good indication and a good reminder that your age doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a part in defending the truth of the Word of God. It also doesn't mean that just because you're old means you have the truth of God. In this case, though, we have Athanasius who was going to fight the fight of his life. And it really would be his entire life. He would spend 52 years defending the deity of Jesus Christ against the encroachment of those that would say that Jesus is not God, but that he's less than God. In 321, a synod was convened in Alexandria where Arius, who was then a deacon, was brought up before the senate and then was said that he was a heretic. He was immediately removed from his deaconship and was considered one who opposed the orthodox teaching of the church. At that same time, Athanasius was 23 years old. He had written a deposition to Alexander, and as a result of that, he began to defend the teaching of the deity of Jesus Christ. What Arius proposed and what he taught created a firestorm, 60 years of ecclesiastical and political conflict on the very topic of whether or not Jesus Christ was God. Eusebius of Nicomedia, which is an area of Turkey, He was one that took up the mantle of Arius and promoted the doctrines of the lack of deity of Christ or that Jesus Christ was a created being. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but Eusebius was also the very one that baptized Constantine on his deathbed. 
For the next 40 years, though, Eastern and the eastern part of the Roman Empire would be influenced by the Arian doctrine. In fact, by the time that Athanasius even got up a little bit in age, the, the doctrine of Arianism, the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, had permeated Eastern Europe and the eastern part of the European Empire. Now, even with that going on, there was the Council of Nicaea that came about as a result of this doctrine. They met together in 325, and there was over 300 pastors that came together to debate, to defend, to actually dialogue, and to eventually write out what they believed to be what the Bible taught about the deed of Jesus Christ. It produced what we know today as the Nicene Creed. It's really a Christological confession, meaning that the primary purpose of it was to defend the person and deity of Jesus Christ. If you've ever read it or even repeated it in a church setting, you'll be familiar with it. What we have today is not really the earlier version of it or the first version of it. The first version was one that was a little bit more choppy and a a whole lot more offensive. In fact, at the end of the Nicene Creed, there were anathemas stated that those that did not believe that Jesus Christ was indeed God or that if they believed that Jesus was created, they were condemned by the church. Later on in 381 A.D., Uh, In the area of Constantinople, this Nicene Creed was modified some or made easier to read and to use in liturgical processes in the church. What is notable about that creed, though, is that there are four lines given to the Father, there are four lines given to the Holy Spirit, and there are 20 lines given to Jesus Christ. Let me just read that portion, if I can, this morning. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, and became man. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Pretty straightforward and orthodox, no doubt. Hundreds of bishops signed on to it, saying they affirmed it but they actually ended up using the very words that were written in the creed, twisting them to support Arianism. Alexander, who was then the Bishop of Alex- Alexander, who was then the Bishop of Alexandria, died on April 17th, 328, and after that, three years after the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius took the reins. He took upon him the task of defending the deity of Jesus Christ against the rampant onslaught of Arianism that was moving throughout the areas there. He was bishop over the areas of Egypt and Libya, and in his region where he was over the churches, he banned and literally got rid of all the Arian doctrine. But because he had done so, the other bishops up in the other part of the Roman Empire saw him as a threat. He became a flashpoint, someone to attack, and the controversy ensued. Most of the bishops who had signed the creed at Nicaea were not willing to go as far as Athanasius was, Athanasius was willing to call them heretics. They were not. They wanted to keep the peace, even though they may not necessarily agree with those that denied the deed of Jesus Christ. They weren't willing to go as far as to say they were heretics. That also spread all the way to Constantine, who said the same thing. They actually tried to get rid of Athanasius a number of ways. He was like a thorn in their flesh. They produced all types of accusations against him, saying that he was too young to be ordained, that he had levied illegal taxes against people. They even came up with a very strange and bizarre way to try to get rid of him. They took one of their bishops, Arrhenius, and sent him away to hide, and then accused Athanasius that he had murdered him, and then said that he had actually cut off his hand and used his hand in magic. Well, finally, all this came to a head in 331 whenever he was brought before Constantine. Little did they know that at that time, Athanasius had sent one of his deacons in search of Arrhenius. They found him. They brought him back, covered him up with a cloak, and brought him inside. They didn't know who was there. So as they presented the charge against Athanasius that he had murdered someone and cut his hand off to use him for magic, 
they brought him in. He stood there with the cloak and opened up with one hand and then opened up with the other hand. And then Athanasius said, so where did the third hand come from? Well, eventually he was acquitted, but it wasn't something that would stop. They continued attacks against Athanasius. Eventually he was condemned and had to flee for his life. He spent 17 years of his life in exile, different times, different periods. The longest period was seven years. He would leave his church in exile. His church would stay faithful to him and hope that he would return. Eventually he did, a number of times in fact. He would hide out in the desert area among the monks and they would protect him because they believed in his cause and believed in the doctrine that he taught. It came to a head on one occasion on February 8th and 356 whenever he was back home between exiles. He was at his church. He was preaching and preparing his people there for communion. The soldiers came in in a large group and were going to take him prisoner and eventually kill him. But during the service, though, he instructed one of his deacons to go ahead and continue to read Psalm 136. And the deacon did. Each time the congregation would respond to each verse by saying, for his steadfast love endures forever, the soldiers would advance forward every time. The soldiers, of course, tried to get him. Eventually he fled and was protected again by the monks. Amongst the confusion, many of the people there in that area where Athanasius was pastor were killed. Bloodshed was great at that time. He spent the last years of his life fulfilling his calling as a pastor, overseeing his church and other church pastors. He had extensive correspondence on the topics of the deity of Jesus Christ, defending the doctrine of the deity of Christ. He understood that the gospel and the, the truth of the gospel was actually found in the person of Christ. And if you got the person of Christ wrong, then you lost the gospel. He was a soldier for the deity of Christ. Athanasius contra mundum should inspire every pastor to stand his ground against those who would want to teach otherwise and contrary to the truth of Scripture. I wonder if we have that kind of courage today. I mean, could you even get 300 pastors together to debate theology for three months? Would that ever happen? In fact, most of the time, what our society is more concerned about is Morality and what the church says about morality, they literally could care less what you believe about Jesus or what you believe about Christ. But I must confess to you that that is not the way it should be. In fact, what you and I believe about Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. If you don't get Christ right, you're going to end up in hell. Now, I want to just go back over a couple of things as we look at this again today, and I'll finish with this, Lord willing, on the topic of Jesus is God. If you remember last time we came together, we talked about three points or began talking about them. The first was his eternal pre-existence. And we referred to the fact that he was indeed one who existed before his incarnation. That means before he became a man. The Bible teaches that he was in heaven. He came down from heaven. So he existed before he was a man on this earth. And also we noted that in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ appeared many times as the angel of the Lord. And then secondly, we began seeing that he also existed not only before his incarnation, but he existed before all creation. And the reason is, is because the Bible says that he created everything. Everything was created by him. In John 1, 3, it says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. There was nothing created, nothing made that wasn't made by him. Therefore, he existed long before creation. But then the Bible also teaches that he existed eternally, that he's always existed. There's never been a time that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, existed. There's never been a time that he did not exist. He is eternal. He even affirmed that in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham came into existence, I am, which is a way of saying that he eternally exists. He is the eternal one. He said it also, or John did at least in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. And the word was, was the imperfect tense verb, which means that he continually was in the past. Never has been a time that Jesus did not exist. We move to the second point, not only his eternal existence, but his incarnational existence. And we began looking at that last Lord's Day where he makes claims that only God can make. 
The claims that he made identify him as God, not less than God, not created by God. John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. The are there is the verb imi. It refers to his existence as, and he continually existed as one with the Father. He's not, as the Jehovah Witnesses would say, one in purpose. It was one in essence is what he's talking about. One in essence and nature. As a result of him making that statement in verse 31 of John 10, it says the the Jews took up stones to stone him because he had said these words, and by saying that, he made himself to be equal with God. And then we also noted as we closed out last Lord's Day, the statements given to us in the book of Revelation. The Old Testament identifies God, Yahweh, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. But Jesus identifies himself in the book of Revelation as the Alpha. He says in verse 13 of Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Whenever it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that is Christ. That is Christ. So we saw that he made those claims, but also where I want to go today and for the rest of the time as we work our way through this is what others have said about him. Not only what he said about himself, but what did others say about him? Now there are hundreds of scriptures we could go to, and I don't have the time to go through all of them, but I want to highlight a few of them, and you know some of them. Isaiah, the prophet, said a few things about Christ in his prophecy. You remember Isaiah 7, 14, right? It says, therefore, the Lord will give to you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is to be translated God with us. So the name of Christ is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Uppercase G, not lowercase. The Jehovah Witnesses want to say that's not Almighty God, that's just Mighty God. So they try to make a lessening of the phrase. But in fact, the very same Hebrew word that is used here in Isaiah 9, 6, where it's translated mighty God, is used over in Deuteronomy 10, 17, which says this, For the Lord Yahweh, your God, is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty. The same exact Hebrew word. So whenever it says that Jesus is the child that is born and the son that is given, it tells us that he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But then we turn to the apostle Paul. What did Paul say about Christ? And with that, I want you to turn with me. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. There are a couple of definitive statements that are Our Lord has been given by the Apostle Paul here that are very, very clear. Titus chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 11. Paul the Apostle, writing to Titus, says these words, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, listen to this, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some like to try to make a distinction between the great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. But grammatically, that's not possible. And I want to get a little technical, but not too technical here. Many years ago, in the 1800s, there was a man by the name of Granville Sharp. He was actually a very strong abolitionist in England, and he was also a Greek scholar. He noticed that there was a pattern in the Septuagint and a pattern in the New Testament Greek that showed us that whenever there were two nouns joined together by the word and and preceded by one word the, that they meant the same thing. And so in this case here, you have exactly that. 
you have that we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And the Greek would read basically this, the great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's telling us that the God is the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not saying they're two distinct people. It's saying the great God is Jesus Christ. Another way of saying that, and we use that many times in our own English language, we would say something like this, the great man and soldier, how more? Well, it's the same person. And so the same is the case here. The great God is the Savior, Jesus Christ. That rule is used consistently. In fact, there are some who have debated it, but Daniel Wallace, who's a Greek scholar out of Dallas Theological Seminary, who wrote the Greek grammar beyond the basics, said regarding this rule, a proper understanding of the rule shows it to have the highest degree of validity within the New Testament. Consequently, these passages, this one and one other that I'll show you later, these two passages are secure as any in the canon when it comes to identifying Christ as God. He is God and is identified as so. You're in the same book, Titus, look at chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. So God's the Savior, right? Look down just a couple of verses to verse 6, Titus 3, 6. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Who's the Savior? God or Christ? It's the same. In fact, you'll find that the words are used interchangeably many times by the apostles in the New Testament. They do not see a distinction between God and Christ. Christ is God. God is Christ. And then we turn to Acts 20. You don't have to turn if you don't want to. I'm going to be there quickly and gone. But in Acts 20, 28, listen to these words. This is Paul again. Paul is talking to the church at... Um, Ephesus speaking to the elders there and he says therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood who's the he the he is God the church of God which he God purchased with his own blood and there's only one person who died on the cross and that was Jesus and Jesus is being identified here by the apostle Paul as God. Also, if you want to turn to this one, you can. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3 and following, we have Paul's own admission that Jesus Christ is indeed God, about as clear as it could get. Romans 9, 3. In Romans 9, 3, it says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Now he's talking about Christ, right? Now you're looking at verse 5 now. He says, Christ came who is over all. And then it says, eternally blessed God. It's identifying Jesus Christ as the eternal blessed God. And then there's another one. If you can turn to this, because I want you to follow with me on these in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. I know these are a lot of verses, but if you'll stay with me, you'll see some very important truth regarding the deity of Christ. Paul again confessing clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9. The Bible says, For in him, talking about Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now the word dwells is the Greek word katoikeo. It's actually two words, kata, which means down or according to, and the word oikeo, which is the word house or to dwell. In the verb form, it means to dwell in a place. When you add the preposition in front of it, it actually intensifies it. And as one lexicon says, it means this, to settle down as a permanent resident, to stay put, to be fixed. So the idea is that for in him permanently dwells, that's the point of the text, permanently dwells the fullness of the Godhead. And the word fullness is the Greek word we see a number of times in the New Testament, 
Plerao is the root word. It means completely full. Completely full. Completed. Total. That's the idea behind the word. Not just part of the Godhead, but all of the Godhead. Completely full. The word translated here, Godhead, actually used only one time here in the New Testament, is the Greek word theotes. It actually has the idea of embodying the entire Godhead. And believe me, I believe what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the entire Godhead. If you go back to the Gospels, what you have is this. You remember in John 14, he's talking to Philip, and Philip says, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And then there were times whenever Jesus Christ even identified as the Spirit that would come and dwell within you. And the point is, whenever you see Jesus, you don't see part of God, you see All of God, although veiled, obviously, or we would be consumed in his presence, but it is veiled, but you see the entire nature and character of God. So Paul says, in him, in Christ, completely and permanently dwells the full Godhead. Now I want you to turn with me to Colossians 1.15. I want to revisit this because last week I did not deal with a text, a particular word here in the text that I do need to address. Colossians 1 and verse 15. Paul again, writing these words, says, He is the image, referring to Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. Remember the word for image here is the word icon. It means direct replica or even a mirror image of God. And so Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of God to us. But then he says this, He's the firstborn over all creation. Now that has caused a lot of people a lot of confusion. In fact, many translations have it, the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah Witnesses have taken this to mean that Jesus Christ was the first one created. He's a created being. And so they take this word, firstborn, to teach that. But is that what it's actually saying? Is that what Paul means when he uses the term firstborn? It's not the first time that he's used that word. In fact, in Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's used also, if Paul wrote it, Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels worship him. John the Apostle uses it in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, where it says this, that from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. So this is a common phrase or a common word that is used to refer to Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? Does it mean that Jesus some, somehow, sometime in the past was born? Or does it mean somehow, some way in the past that Jesus was created by God? Is that what he's saying? Well, first of all, let's look at the obvious. Okay, The obvious is in the text itself. And Colossians 1.15, notice it with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, or even of all creation. Then it says in verse 16, for by him, notice the word all things, for by him all things were created, whether they are in heaven or on the earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, Then again, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. You know, one of the things the JWs do to this text is they insert a little word that is actually not in the Greek text. They add the word other there. And so in their New World Translation, it says, for by him all other things were created. And they do that consistently through that text. Problem is, it's not in the text. It's not in the original Greek text at all. They inserted it because this text gave their theology a great deal of problems. And what is he saying? He's simply saying that everything, all things, there's no exclusion here. Anything that was created, whether it's invisible or visible, was created by God. So how can Jesus be the first one created and then at the same time create everything? That's not possible. That's contradictory to the text itself. And also the word firstborn, as often people look at it and they kind of read initially what they think the word means. 
They think that what it means is chronological birth. And no doubt there are times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament when the word firstborn does refer to chronological birth, meaning that you may have two children. One is born first, and they're called the firstborn. It's used a number of times like that. You even find it over in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. It's mentioned that way of the firstborn. But what is also interesting is that you find in the Old Testament that not every firstborn person remains firstborn. For instance, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was born second, but later in the Old Testament, he's called the firstborn. Manasseh defected and apostatized, and then Ephraim was now appointed as the firstborn. You also find the situation familiar with us with Esau, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, but who received the inheritance? Jacob. Later on, by the way, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Israel is called the firstborn. So the point is, it's not always the case that the firstborn means that you're born first chronologically or that you're made first, as so many would want to interpret it that way. That's not exactly what it has in mind. But then add this thought to it. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, don't need to turn to it. Just listen to this, okay? You'll lose it if you don't. If you turn in, you're going to lose this point. When I read that verse, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, does that mean that Jesus Christ was the first person that was resurrected from the dead? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus Christ resurrected people from the dead. And there were other people that resurrected from the dead before he was resurrected from the dead. Old Testament and New Testament. So that's not what it means. And then there's the other verse, like found over here in Colossians itself, where it says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's not talking about chronological order, because there were others that were resurrected from the dead before he was. We find it a number of times used that way. But another little hint about the word firstborn is found in Luke and Exodus. Listen to these two verses. Luke chapter 2 verse 22 says, And now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses was completed, they brought him to Jerusalem, talking about Christ, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb who is firstborn shall be called holy to the Lord. And then also in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So there's a certain being set apart as the firstborn, clearly in the Old Testament. But even in Job chapter 18, verse 13, it uses a fatal disease and names it the firstborn of death. And it doesn't mean that that was the first disease that ever showed up that would kill anybody. It simply means that it is the preeminent one, the, the, the worst one, if you will, of all the diseases. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 30 uses this word, firstborn. It says that they are the firstborn of the poor, not meaning that they were the very first ones who ever were poor, but in that context, it means that they were the worst of the poor. So what you begin to find out as you work through this Old and New Testament, seeing the Greek word translated Septuagint and then the New Testament, prototokos, it has more to do with rank and position than it has to do with chronological birth. That what's happening here is, is that Jesus Christ is not being identified as the one who at some time in the past in eternity came into existence, but rather that he is the firstborn in the sense that he is the preeminent one. He is priority number one, if you will. He is the best of the best. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. That's what's behind the text. You find a psalm like Psalm 89, 27 that refers to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And it says that he shall be my firstborn. God the Father says of Christ, he shall be my firstborn. And then it defines what it means by that. It says that he is the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the idea behind the word firstborn. Listen, that's not all the arguments against the popular idea that Jesus would have been a created being like the Jehovah Witnesses would teach. In fact, this word firstborn that is translated here in our text in Colossians 1.15 
wouldn't make any sense if you interpreted it to mean that you were first created because if you look at the word also that refers to Jesus Christ, monogenes means the only begotten one, which basically means the only unique one. So if Jesus Christ is the first of many to be born, chronologically speaking, then he's not the only unique one. And the word only begotten means that he's the only one like him. That's what it means with the word only begotten. Church father Theodoret said this, if Christ was only begotten, could he then be first begotten? And how if he were first begotten, 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 could he be only begotten? How could he be the first of many in his class and at the same time only be a member of his class? The point is, is that you can't have even those two words work together if you believe that Jesus Christ was a created being. There's a couple other arguments I'll leave to the notes if you want to go in there and read them. They're a little bit more technical. But the point is that the Apostle Paul was dealing with this because, listen to this, that was the heresy that was being promoted in the church at Colossae, that Jesus Christ was a created being, that he had a starting point. And what Jesus is doing, or rather Paul is doing here, he is confronting the heresy that we know today, even as Arianism, that was in the time of the church at Colossae. It would not have helped him to be teaching that Jesus Christ was a created being when indeed that was indeed the heresy that was circulating in the area of Colossae. And if that's not enough for you, I mean, you could go to most of the lexical forms and most of the lexical sources of Greek and they will tell you emphatically over and over again that that word prototokos has the idea, and I'll list a few examples of the definitions of it, pertaining to or existing prior to something else, Existing first, existing before, existing before anything that was created, superior in status, a rank above, precedent above, superior to, primacy, anything above all, and supreme above all. That's your Greek lexicons that tell you what the word prototokos means. And the way they find that out is by its usages through the Old and the New Testament. So it's not telling us that Jesus Christ was a created being. Rather, he is the preeminent one. And whenever it says he's the firstborn from the dead, not that he's the first in chronological order, but he's the preeminent one among all those that are resurrected from the dead. He is the preeminent one. The same is the case in Romans chapter 8 when it says he's the firstborn among many brethren. What does that mean? It means that He's the first one in preeminence among all the brethren in the church. That's the way it's found in the New Testament. So I needed to deal with that so that you have some information on how to address that, especially as you read through your New Testament. Now, there's another person that not only talked about Christ and who he was. You had the prophet Isaiah. You have the apostle Paul. But you also have Thomas. Now, this is doubting Thomas, as so many would call him. But this doubting Thomas gives one of the most affirming declarations and one of the clearest declarations of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. I think we need to rethink Thomas. Listen to what it says in John 20, verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut. Now, this is after the resurrection. Jesus is in his glorified body. The doors are shut. The disciples are scared to death. Jesus shows up without opening the door. That means he goes through the walls. He's not constricted anymore by physical matter. So Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst. And the first words that come out of his mouth are, peace be with you. Well, I would expect so. Most of them would have been terrified at that moment as Jesus shows up. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas did so. And then it says in verse 28, he answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, there's no way around that text. The JWs would like you to believe that it has to be a God, but this has the definite article there. There, You can't get around it. There's no way around it. It literally can be the Lord and the God, my God. Jesus is confessed here by Thomas to be clearly Yahweh, the Old Testament God. 
that reminds me of what it says in Psalm 118.27, which no doubt would have been a word that would have been in the heart and the mind of Thomas. Psalm 118.27 says, God is my Lord. Verse 28, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. That's exactly the way Thomas was confessing Jesus Christ as his Lord and his God. There's another one. I can't spend all day in John because there's so many verses in John that declare this, but I wanted to take one from the Apostle John in his little letter, 1 John. Listen to this. 1 John 5.20. That's one you want to write down and always go to. It's about as clear as it can be. 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son Jesus Christ. Then it says, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ, identified here by John, is the true God and eternal life. I had Sandy read earlier Hebrews chapter 1 because Hebrews 1 is one of those definitive passages of the deity of Christ. Turn back there just for a second if you can. I want to show you just a couple of verses here. Hebrews chapter 1, without reading all of it, I just want to pick out verse 8 and verse 9. Hebrews 1, verse 8, and verse 9. So the Father, God the Father, is speaking to his Son. And it says in Hebrews 1, 8, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, what does it say? O God, your throne, O God, is forever. This is the Father speaking to the Son, Jesus Christ, saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Then verse 9, very interesting point. After it says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, it says, therefore God, your God has anointed you. The declaration is to God the Son that God the Father has anointed him. So even in this text, you have that inner Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. A clear affirmation that Jesus is indeed Yahweh of the Old Testament the God of Israel, the creator of all things. Then you have Peter's words. Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the same thing that is said over Titus 2, verse 13. Same exact construction, but Peter uses it here. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior. And again, he uses that same construction I shared with you earlier that says that there are two nouns and they're joined by and preceded by the, which means it's the same person. The same person. Peter affirms that. So, and there are many other verses we could go to, but let's move on now, okay? So we have the incarnational existence of his claims that he made for himself. You also have the claims that others made about him. But then we want to move to the second point of that is this. The miracles that he does, he does because only God can do them. The miracles that Jesus does can only be explained if Jesus is God. Nicodemus understood this even when he was lost because he came to Jesus in John 3 And he said, we know that you are a man who comes from God because no man can do the things that you do except God be with him. Nicodemus didn't fully understand all that he was saying there. Eventually, he affirms that Jesus is the Messiah and no doubt, indeed, God himself. But let me show you a couple of miracles. I can't go through all of them. But there's three points I would bring up about Jesus' miracles and how they reflect that he's God. First of all, there are miracles of omniscience. What do we mean by that is that Jesus knows everything, all right? And he knows your thoughts. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the devil doesn't even know your thoughts. Angels don't know your thoughts, but God knows your thoughts, and only God knows your thoughts. So there's miracles of omniscience. Let's look at that for a second. I'm just going to read some to you. I want you to listen to them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it says, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, why do you have evil in your hearts? In Matthew 12, 25, Jesus 
knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation. In Luke 9, 46, then a dispute arose among those who were there that day, who would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving and knowing the thought that was in their heart. So Jesus knows their thoughts. John 2, 24, it says, And Jesus did not commit himself to them, that is to men, because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In John six sixty one. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? In John six sixty four. but there were some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Even finally with Simon Peter in John twenty one seventeen, when Jesus is really grilling Peter on his love for Christ, he says in verse 17, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know my thoughts. And it even says it repeatedly in the book of Revelation, especially as Jesus moves through the churches. He's evaluating the seven churches. And he says repeatedly, I know your works. I know your works. In Revelation 2.23, it even says this, as Jesus is speaking to the church, he says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. That's Jesus Christ. Now, you say, is God the only one who does this? Absolutely. Emphatically so. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks, you can finish it for me, looks at the heart. He knows the heart. First Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord, the Lord God, searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Psalm 44, 29, 21 says, Would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Hebrews 4, 13 after it says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and able to discern between thought and intent, it goes on in Hebrews 4.13 and says, And there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's not one thought, one attitude, one motivation that is not fully exposed to God because God is omniscient. But Jesus is also omniscient. Which tells us that Jesus is God. Now there's a second point that I want to bring out about miracles. And that's the miracle of creation. The miracle of creation. So I want you to turn with me to these. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And again, I'm just picking out a couple of them to illustrate this. Matthew 14, verse 19 through 21. These are some of the most familiar to us. Jesus is gathering together there the crowd that has been following him, that is 5,000 men. They only counted the men back then, sorry ladies. But there would have been women there too, and children. Many believe there would have been 25,000 plus, and that's conservative. So there's a huge crowd that has begun to follow Christ, right? And in Matthew 14, verse 19, it says, And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke it and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples gave it to the multitudes. Now, between verse 19 and verse 20, there's a white space and that white space is a miracle. It's unparalleled because what happens is this. Jesus takes bread this already made. All right. He takes two fish and he creates enough fish in the baskets and he creates enough bread already baked, already made, pre-made bread in the baskets to feed 25,000 people. That's amazing. That's an act of creation. 
Jesus isn't having his disciples go down to the nearest you know, dollar store and grab some flour. He's not going to the nearest grocery store and grabbing some fish or telling his disciples, you guys go out and start pulling the nets. We've got to feed these people. No, what he does, he creates fish and he creates bread. And it says in verse 20, so they all ate, and listen to this, were plerao, filled. They were filled. Actually, that's the word cortazo. I'm sorry, it means foddered up, filled to the top. Totally filled up, like Baptists do on second Sundays when we eat. That kind of filled up. And here you have the same situation where our Lord is actually creating, not making from other elements, but creating out of nothing, fish and bread. That's an act of God. That's not an act of man. That's an act of God. Then chapter 15 of Matthew. Matthew 15, verse 29. Matthew 15, verse 29. Again, Jesus is departing. He's moving around the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are following him. Great crowd in masses around him. And it says in Matthew 15, 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, went up on a mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Four words in English, three words in Greek. He healed the lame, the blind, the mute, and the maimed of all of that multitude. Now, for us, we, we don't see a lot of that in our culture, but you may know of people that are blind. You may have know of people that are mute, that maybe their vocal cords don't work. But the lamed and the maimed, these two words, kolos and kulos in the Greek, refer to having members of your body missing. Not just crippled, although it can imply that, but it's talking primarily about you having something that's been severed, or in many cases in those days, those who had leprosy would lose their hands or their feet or their nose or their ears because of disease, and sometimes, frankly, rats would chew them off. Whatever would happen, but there would be a lot of people who were maimed. Mutilated is actually the word in the Greek. So they were missing members of their body. These people came to Jesus And it says, he healed them. And it says later on in the same text in verse 31, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed, listen to this, made what? Whole. Complete. Jesus didn't give them a better ability to walk with their missing foot. He gave them a new foot. It's no different than what happened in the garden. You remember when Peter took the sword and he chops off the ear of the man, the soldier? And what does Jesus do? He recreates the ear. On sight. This word, by the way, that is translated here, maimed, is used over in verb form in Matthew 18, 8, where Jesus says this, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into the life lamed or maimed. So maimed in this context refers to having something cut off. And so Jesus is literally dealing not with the nonsensical miracles that are supposedly claimed today by these faith healers. People come up on stage and say, you know, my leg's not as long as my other leg. And they heal their length of their leg. Or supposedly they have a migraine headache that you can't even see. Or they have some psychosomatic disease that's been going on for years that you can't even see. Jesus' miracles that he did were not explainable by human terminology. They were miraculous. They were supernatural. They could not be explained apart from him being God himself. Because God is the one who creates. He created feet. He created eyes. He created tongues. He created whatever was missing on the human body. Jesus healed them and made them whole. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. This word, by the way, translated here, made whole, is used over in Matthew 12, 9. Listen to this. Matthew 12, 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went to the synagogues. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that he might be accused? And then in chapter 12, verse 13, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. That's the same word. The point was, it was absolutely perfect the way it was initially created. But there's miracles of omniscience. That Christ has that show that he's God. There's miracles of creation that clearly affirm that he's God. But also, we don't have to forget this. There's miracles of life. Miracles of life. 
In other words, Jesus has the power to give life to people. He has the power to give people who are dead life. John 5, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whomever he will. And John 5, 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And then the classic in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And John also said the same thing as Jesus gives the words in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is life. John chapter 1 says that in Christ was life. First John chapter 1 says in Christ was life. He has life. But he not only has life, he has the ability to grant life. Even to the deadest of people, right? You have the illustration of it in John 11 where Lazarus is dead for four days. And he's so dead that his body is stinking in the grave. He gathers before the grave and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And it says, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. A man who had been dead for four days... And Jesus resurrects him to life. You have Luke chapter 7, verse 12. It says, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd in that city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Then you have Luke chapter 8, Jairus' daughter who was raised. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he said to him, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. And they came to the house, and he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. And now all wept and mourned for her. And he said, do not weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. They'd been around long enough. They knew what a dead body looked like. In verse 54, it says, and he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called her saying, little girl, arise. Then it says, then her spirit returned. That's God, folks. That's not a man. That's not a created being. That's not Michael the archangel. That's God. How do we know that it's God? Because the Bible clearly identifies that he only is the one who can grant life. God is the only one that can do so. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I am God. I am he and there is no other besides me. I kill and I make alive. God's the one who does that. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You even have the apostle Paul before King Agrippa, whenever he was there talking about his confession and his mission, he said this, he says, why should it be thought incredible to you, King Agrippa, that God would raise the dead? That's what God does. He makes claims to be God he does miracles that show that he's God. But then we want to move to the third point, and that is this. He receives worship only as God. He receives worship only as God. I'm going to have to finish with this, so y'all stay with me. He receives worship as only God can receive worship. Now, this is a serious issue. Because if Jesus Christ is less than God, or if he's a God, or if he's created by, by God or if he's born sometime in eternity past so that he's not the same Yahweh of the Old Testament, then we have a serious problem here because we now have polytheism going on in the New Testament. We have the worship of multiple gods, when in fact the Bible is abundantly clear that we are to worship only one God, and that is the true God. Luke chapter 4 verse 8 says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall worship. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3 says, And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and then put away your foreign gods and the Astaroths that are among you, and prepare your heart for the Lord, and serve or worship him only. In Deuteronomy 6, 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and worship him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Exodus thirty four fourteen says, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. In 2 Kings 17, 36, But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power, with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandments which he wrote, you shall be careful to observe forever, and you shall not fear any other gods. This is over and over again. Angels even forbade the disciple John to worship angels. You remember that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10? It says, And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. This is John the Apostle falling down to worship an angel because he's just overwhelmed with the glory of the angel. And what does the angel say? See that you do not do that. Stop doing that. He says, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren whom have a testimony of Jesus. Then the angel says, Worship God. Worship God. Now, we look at the New Testament, though. You look at the life of Christ. He's worshipped all over the place. And he doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, listen now, you guys, I'm not Yahweh. You need to not do this. We need to worship only the one true God. Listen to what happens. Here's a few examples, and I'll finish up quickly. John 9, verse 35. You know the healing of the blind man, right? In John 9, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and now it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus does not stop him. Matthew fourteen twenty-five. Jesus comes walking on the water. In verse 25, now it was the fourth watch of the night. Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. It saying it was a ghost, and they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind that was boisterous, he was afraid. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. That's the idea. The wind stopped. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. And Matthew 28, 5 it says, but the angel answered and said to the woman, this is after the resurrection, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, whom was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. And they went in to tell the disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. You have others like Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, the mountain, when Jesus had appointed, where Jesus had appointed them. And they saw him and they worshipped him. Luke 24, 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. As he was leading them down as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass as he blessed them, he was parting from them. He was carried up into heaven. And it says in verse 52 of Luke 24, and they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Jesus is God. He's worshipped. 
There's no other God but Christ. Well, I told you I was going to finish with that, right? Well, I'm going to finish with one other text. And this comes quick. Philippians 2. Turn there quickly. We'll just read through it and I'll make one point. Philippians 2. We talked about his eternal existence, his incarnational existence, and the other is his future existence. He's God, so he will be worshipped as God in the future. Philippians 2 talks about his incarnation as he comes from heaven to earth, but it also talks about his ascension back to heaven where he is also exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords on the throne of God in heaven. In Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now verse 6, referring to Christ, who being continually being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a slave. He came in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is our Lord's humiliation. This is his condensation where he comes down to the earth and he takes on human form and dies on the cross for us as a result of that verse 9 says therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven of those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know if you know this, but that phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, comes from Isaiah 45, where it says that God says this. And this is about God. Listen to Isaiah 45, 21. And there is no other gods besides me, a just God and Savior, There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, God, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. That's Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we close.